Hello and welcome to the Kunstler Cast. Thanks for listening. My guest this time around is the blogger Eugipius, who writes about the pandemic aftermath and the pathological politics of contemporary Germany. He spent much of his life abroad and over a decade in American universities as a grad student and a teacher. He writes in English on Substack. He is very careful about revealing more of his identity, given the extreme censorship and cancellation policies in his country these days. You can find him at eugipius.com and see the show notes for the spelling of his name. It's a pleasure to have uh, on my podcast uh, the Substack blogger known as Eugipius. And um, he is a German writing in English on Substack, and he's attracted quite a good audience over the last several months. Just wonderful to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Well, it's an enormous privilege to be on your podcast, Mr. Kunstler. Thank you for the invitation. Um, Eugipius, when exactly did Europe decide to roll over and die? Well, it's a good question. I'd say there's... <laughs> the answer could be quite conden- t- tendentious, yeah. uh, you could say, after, Let after, 1940, after 1945, you know, things, <laughs> the uh, uh, Europe became sort of an extended colony of the United States, you know, so you can have different views of that, that could be good or bad, depending on your your political understandings, but, but the really, Europe reduced to this sort of political subordinate almost a colony, a de facto colony, uh, has had very, I don't know, very uh, wide, wide ranging political consequences. And uh, these ultimately have spilled over into cultural consequences as well. Uh, I would say these were in the works for a long time, uh, but did not really become very apparent until, at least in Germany, until uh, the Merkel era. And uh, really, sort of the beginning of present insanity, I sort of trace to the 2008 euro crisis. And that's when everything didn't seem quite right anymore with the European Union. And uh, that was Merkel's sort of first, the first sign that there's something not quite right with this woman. And since then, it's just been a series of I don't know, escalating political crises. And, what, what was and, that first sign on the, on the game board itself? Uh, what, what, what was it that uh, actually informed you that something was wrong? Well, the, so the euro crisis, I was in the United States uh, in school for that, but, but uh, you know, I was back in, in Munich uh, from time to time. And so I, I don't know my way around the details too well, but it was my impression, just speaking from, you know, airplane elevation about these matters, that it was, uh, it was sort of the first moment that the European Union sort of emerged or was revealed as a sort of, sort of you could un- uncharitably call it a kind of cartel for uh, German industrial production domestically or, or within Europe, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so. German was really Germany was willing to make enormous economic investments in to prop up 
the euro and Greece and so forth, because Germany regarded the euro as kind of a trade scheme to sell its automobiles without tariffs to its neighbors. That's yeah, sort of and all of these, way of um, putting it. All of these neighbors in Europe were Germany's customers for all kinds of industrial products. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, of course. That that's sort of coming to an end now, gradually. But uh, but it was your uh, Germany was the sort of industrial center of Europe and still still is though though that that will change in the coming years. So so that was the first moment, and then and then afterwards, you know, uh, twenty fifteen, uh, my own my own sort of red pilling moment was really 2015 with uh, the migrant crisis sort of a self-imposed just political insanity by Merkel for very unclear reasons uh, another another key event was the nuclear phase out which Merkel engineered in the wake of Fukushima in 2011 really for no reason uh, it seems that the purpose of this was simply to triangulate and deny the Greens an advantage in a regional election in that year. Hmm. And she basically committed Germany to committing energy suicide for for this reason. It's a very typical kind of Merkel policy with this sort of triangulation with the left all the time. Uh, it was also under Merkel that the German media started going crazy. I mean, maybe it was always crazy, but... But the, uh, she increased the license fees, so the mandatory fees everyone has to pay for state media steadily in her in her term. And with that, brought a lot of very positive media coverage, uh, while the press just became a massive kind of political, heavily politicized behemoth, uh, very propagandistic and in very overt ways that were unusual. Uh, so all of these things, and of course, the whole pandemic and Corona under Merkel was a catastrophe as well. Um, was there, there no sense at all uh, in Germany that the migrant crisis was an insane artificial crisis? That's very, again, the, that's a very good question. There are many ways to answer it. There's, there's uh, again, because of state media dominance in Germany, it's, it's sort of a a very unique phenomenon until you live here and really read the the news every day you don't really have a perspective on it but well uh, you know, excuse me but you can you see that very clearly in the new york times as well that, that's true but but it's a little so the new york times though is well of course it's regime adjacent right but it's not it's not directly funded by the government and so so the, the press in the in the united states i would say is less coordinated than it is in germany uh, here, everything is, all media outlets really just blare the same thing all the time. Uh, there's very little alternative media. Uh, what little exists is you know, being investigated by, by our constitutional political police. Uh, and in the migrant crisis, it was just a massive wall of propaganda about, you know, wir schaffen das, we can do it, uh, how they're all going to be doctors and lawyers who are coming over from Syria and uh and there was really a sort of public hysteria that, that accompanied it. Uh, you know, I know my neighbors were all lining up to give clothes to various charitable organizations for the arrivals. There are huge crowds in front of the, the main train station in Munich to greet what turned out to be mostly military age young men who arrived. And there's a sort of steady disillusionment afterwards. And if you look at the polls, it took a while. Germans were kind of split, maybe 55, 45, about the wisdom of Merkel's policy here. 
And then the AfD, the alternative uh, alternative for Deutschland, the, the sort of protest populist right party began to rise in the polls through the fall, as it turned out that a lot of the new arrivals were criminals and poorly behaved. And a real breaking point were the the Cologne sexual assaults in New Year, yes. uh, late 2015. And what was shocking about that wasn't even the magnitude or the scope of the crimes, but how state media really covered it up for weeks. And it took a long time and leaks from police sources and local reporting in Cologne to, to really bring that story out. And it was very shocking. And, uh, has, uh, there been any has there been any change in the public mood about uh, the, the migrant crisis? Is there any uh, anger or indignation or, or resentment about it? Oh, yeah, I would say definitely since 2016, uh, ongoing very negative stories about basically migrant behavior in Germany have, have had a steadily disillusioning effect. And now I think the recent polling shows upwards of 65% or higher of Germans are now opposed to immigration. So they've really managed with their own political idiocy to reverse public opinion on this issue in the space of, you know, eight years. Hmm. The government of Germany seems to be acting exactly against the interests of the German people in every way possible. Um, oh, absolutely. Leading them uh, to a situation where they're liable to starve in the cold and dark. Uh, we just barely av avoided that fate last winter. Uh, it helped that the the uh, winter was very mild, so you know our gas consumption and so forth wasn't so high, but... But they are, it's really insane. I think the uh, the coalition government has has uh, how to explain. They're sort of they're, it's it's a, it, they're pathological. They're crazy. They've also lost. They're they're probably the most hated government in the history of the Federal Republic. So so they they've really paid for this. And the uh, in the regional elections, the coalition parties, so the the FDP, the Liberals, and the the um, the SPD, the sort of center-left, and the Greens are getting hammered in local and regional elections everywhere because everyone hates them now. Uh, so there's at least that. But uh, not sure how much it matters, you know, because, well, as we know, politics is very managed theater. Well, but I, I don't have the feeling that the AFD, Alternative for Deutschland Party, is being managed that, that much or that they are able to manage it. Do you are you saying that they they are managing it? Well, no, but there's there's the Brandmauer or the I guess Cordon Sanitaire. So mm -hmm. all all mainstream establishment parties refuse to enter coalitions with the AfD. So effectively, they're they're shut out of of, of governing coalitions, and this has been the case since they merged. And yes, uh, but if the party um, gets more and more votes and more people uh, on their side, perhaps uh, the other parties will have no choice after a certain point. Yeah, so so that's that's already changed a little bit. So there have been noises inside the, the CDU, so our sort of center-right establishment, the Christian Democrats. Uh, there's There's been more noises about moving towards some sort of collaboration, at least at the regional level. Uh, things have changed a lot since. So there was a big incident in Turing in, in uh, Thuringia, in 2020, there was an uh, election for the governor of Thuringia, and they elected Kemmerich, who was a candidate 
of the FDP actually, but he was elected with CDU and, and AFD votes. And uh, this was seen as a huge scandal that CDU would collaborate with the AFD to to promote uh, uh, their own their own candidate. And Merkel denounced it, and Kemmerich was forced to resign. Uh, and there's a huge scandal that, that they would that is, they would collaborate in this way. Uh, and similarly, in Thuringia, just recently, just to show how much things have changed, uh, the CDU and the AfD collaborated on uh, reducing property taxes in in the state it's not a huge deal but they they collaborated again and there was big media freak out but it didn't really matter it was all over in a day and nobody really got in trouble for it so you see how much things have shifted already so it is possible that uh that as AfD gains more ground the cdu starts to cave because the the, the alternative is they have to enter coalitions then with the greens or the spd and uh, this forces then the CDU to be complicit in parties which the center-right base loathes. And this will eventually destroy the CDU if it keeps going in this direction. That's the Christian Democrats. Yes, yes, right, right. Now, there's a long horizon on this crisis that Germany and, and Euroland is in. And uh, how, uh, it, will re it will have to resolve itself one way or another. Is there any general awareness that the standard of living is going down in Europe? I can speak only really for Germany because since the pandemic, I travel hardly at all anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, there's, there's, it's, it's obvious. Uh, the inflation has been obvious. Uh, the first, uh, it's, it's painful to buy to buy food. You know, uh, the the another thing that's happened, which is quite worrying, is a lot of uh, real estate, especially fancy urban apartments and so forth have started actually to go down in value. And this is very shocking, of course, because many Germans have regarded, uh, you know, real estate as, as a primary place for investments. And so for the first time in my life, anyway, the, you see sort of substantial declines in, in the real estate market, which is which is very worrying. Uh, so, so clearly, yes, the standard of living is declining and no one is really in doubt about that. They can't cover it up really. Uh, so, so yeah. But it doesn't seem to be reflected in any kind of public opposition to the government. Well, there's, I, the, the coalition parties, as I said, are very unpopular. So there is a lot of sentiment. And, and of course, there's the, the AfD is very popular, especially in the East, which struggles the most economically uh but but other than that uh yeah it's 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 hard to say people there's not massive street protests or anything uh, yeah well um uh, I, I think both of us are aware that there is a uh a particular level of insanity operating in western civilization now as a general proposition and oh, yes. uh, you you have run into some trouble with it in your uh, professional life. Um, can you talk a little bit about your particular journey into uh, being uh, 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 part of an opposition to this regime? Oh yeah, so 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 as I was a professor in the United States for 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 many years. Uh, the, uh, it was really again around 2015. I, I really started. To, I, I was not very political. I, I work in sort of ancient history, 
philology stuff. So it's not very contemporary, has no real relevance to, mm -hmm. to modern society. And, and I never really thought as I guess I was what I, you might call an ambient leftist or something. I just sort of absorbed the political ethos of my environment without a lot of thought. And uh, it was really, as I said, 2015, uh, with the migrant crisis uh, in Germany, uh, that I really started to to think about the insanity that was happening. And and also it was Trump's election in the US. Uh, so I was, I was in Europe for part of that, but I came back in 2016 and and uh, that I found very, very, it's sort of amazing how, how energizing his campaign was. I speak for myself personally, I don't know your thoughts about it, but and, and what he was saying was really just most of Trump's positions were just politics from 20 years ago. And it was so eye-opening to me how how so sort of liberating and exciting that message was. Uh, and it got me thinking about how much politics must have changed for that to be an exciting and new message, you know. And so that was that was a very important moment for me. Uh, and then what, what happened in the United States, uh, at least in academia, was just, it was right at this exact moment that the entire system sort of took a deep turn into, I don't know, cultural insanity. So the, when I first got my, my teaching position, uh, politically, things weren't too crazy. There were you know, identity politics activists on campus and so forth, but it wasn't too bad for a professor. But after 2015, 2016, I was on I was on research leave and came back and the whole place was crazy. Uh, the <laughs> the uh, really it was it was one one sort of fake uh, theatrical uh, racist outrage after the other. Often the incidents provoking these were transparent provocations, so they weren't real. You know, yeah, there'd be racist graffiti somewhere, and then we'd find CCTV footage of the person doing it, and it was you know a black student or something. You know, uh, that kind of thing, and mm -hmm. it was one after the other. I remember there's a point where the administration got caught surveilling private faculty communications, including my own, hmm. for hints of racism. Uh, that was really disturbing, and so I stopped using my university email account, and uh, I started thinking I really have to get out of here, because if I don't, I'm going to be denounced or something. And uh, so that was really, really frightening. It's and, like uh, living in a also, Kafka novel. It was really crazy. I, it was these were the most insane years of my life. I've never seen so much constant racial cultural agi agitation over over really nothing and uh yeah i don't i so i that's when i started thinking i have to leave i have to get get back home you know uh before i i end up in jail or or denounced and sort of unpersoned uh so, so that's when i left and uh i got back to germany and then the first thing that happened was you know covid so <laughs> oh yes well let, let me ask you this uh um difficult question did the onset of this insanity um, put you in mind of what Germany went through in the 1930s? That's that's a very interesting question. So I obviously was not alive back then. I no, don't know. But you certainly um, know the history. Yeah. So and I it think, is your country after all. <laughs> for better or worse. Uh, I I think, I don't know. There's, there's, I see more differences than parallels. Really? I think I I think that uh, that in in the well then the great the great this is how I see it anyway uh, the great sort of threat facing 
facing Germany, or I guess not threat, but but politically animating principle was was sort of Bolshevism, right? Mm -hmm. And and a lot of a lot of the what you say national socialist sentiment that was only one strand of it. There are other the, the Folkish parties and other nationalist parties uh, were were arrayed in different ways against against sort of impending Bolshevist parties, the Communist Party in Germany and so forth. And uh, so there was sort of a reaction to this. And uh, and so so perhaps you could see parallels in 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 this kind of broad uh, sort of cultural hysterical response to an ideological threat. Uh, you could see them, uh, but the differences are also important. For example, all this happened in the Weimar Republic, which was very weak, actually, uh, unlike our current states, which are extremely powerful. Uh, so, so all of this played out against a background of very ten attenuated state power, and uh, of course the the enormous poverty after 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 the war and the the hyperinflation and so forth. Yeah, the forth. first world war. Yeah, of course, yes. So, so there are there are definitely some some parallels, uh, but I think. I think there are differences too. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's it's a very difficult question. Well, sure, there are differences now. What we have, uh, for example, is uh, a regime which is tending more and more to look like a Bolshevik regime or a yes, I, yes. Uh, Jacobin uh, slash Bolshevik regime. Um, but you know what what they have in common is that the. Jacobins, the Bolsheviks, and the Nazis were all despotic in one way or another. So well, what, sure. what so, we have is Western civilization uh, looking like captives of uh, an hysterical um, regime that simply wants to tell everybody what to do and push them around. Yes, of course. Uh, so I have a little... I'm, I guess I guess I don't know. Maybe it's being German or or something. But I have much more fatalistic idea about sort of authoritarian despotic tendencies among states. I think that states in general uh, enact the sort of maximum authoritarianism that they can afford and that they need to. And so, so for mm -hmm. me, that's less ideologically related. We get uh, states become more authoritarian and interventionist the more threatened they feel by their populations or by external threats, and the the more technology and and other other possibilities permit them to act in this way. So so uh, of course you know Bolshevik regimes, the DDR of course is a is a classic example for Germany, were very authoritarian and invasive and intrusive because they knew that that there were very brittle regimes and they knew there was a lot of potential opposition to to their to their government and so they react with very very authoritarian repressive measures uh, that's 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 just how states function and i think uh, as the west grows more authoritarian and as you say reminiscent i would say less of fascist regimes uh, more of more of uh, east bloc government it's in response to very much the same thing there as long as everything was happy and there's plenty of prosperity and so forth these regimes weren't very threatened they thought people had what they wanted and now as things sort of take a dark turn they become much much more brutal and there's that sort of steely edge to to the state now which uh, before covid uh, i had not really seen you know yeah um 
I see this as a, a kind of a two-part um, problem. Um, speaking of what is the nature of this threat to the uh, power structures that exist. And um, the first way is that they are a threat to embedded relations and especially banking, financial, economic relations, um, including relations between governments and private parties. So there's a big threat to that. Um, that they, you know, that, that's what I see in the United States and one of the reasons that um, the government and the corporations have so violently opposed any kind of um, uh, reform to the way of doing business. But the other thing I see is a g more generalized anxiety over this problem that I call the long emergency, which is the collapse of industrial uh, societies and industrial economies. And I think that, that there are many people even of middling intelligence who apprehend the danger of a collapse but are not really able to articulate it. And they are directing all of their anxiety into the insanity that they are acting out uh, and the performance of these insane rituals. You know, everything from the drag queen story hour to the uh, insane Ukraine project. And uh, I think a lot of this fits into uh, Dr. Desmet's ideas about the mass formation psychosis. Uh, have you given this any thought? Yeah, so I, I read uh, Desmet's book, of course. I think, yeah, there's, there's definitely uh, some truth to the fact that there's, there's, there's a lot of, I don't know, uh, modern anomie. So late stage liberalism uh, can can kind of provide, at least has historically been able to provide some level of prosperity, some kind of abundance. But it's at the same time, uh, everyday life has become increasingly sort of this replicated, cheap, meaningless thing, you know, uh, there's, you know, everyone has the latest consumer plastic eye product from somewhere and everyone kind of le leads the same mimeographed life. And it's, uh, the system is very bad at providing uh, possibilities uh, for personal meaning and, and expression. And uh, so life has achieved very sort of flat valence and appears limited and um, almost vulgar. Uh, that in ways that weren't true uh, before modernity, I would before late modernity anyway. So, so that's that's definitely true, and there's a lot of ambient dissatisfaction with with abundance. The the I think also there's there's we're sort of in a sort of turbo liberal era, as liberal policies or liberal approaches and liberal ideology uh, sort of broken down or failed to provide the old accustomed prosperity and everything that they used to, the elites who are very invested in this ideological system have doubled down on it and just want more and more. And so you see liberalism, which always has these universalizing sort of spreading tendencies, working its way into new areas, you know, drag queen story hour and uh, deconstructing gender and open borders all the time. And, and all this stuff is just liberalism on, on, you know, on speed or something, always trying to find new areas to liberalize. 
And there's sort of historical parallels in sort of, you know, in antiquity or the medieval period when natural disasters or military setbacks occurred. Uh, society and politics would take these as signs of impiety or imperfect religious observance and then, you know, double down on on their sacrifices, their obeisances to deities and so forth, to try to fix things. And I think we are in, in a very similar political moment with sort of turbo liberalization of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say that a lot of the action that we see in the United States comes in the form of what we call a hustle. And a hustle, of course, is an attempt to get something from other people uh, dishonestly. And in fact, almost all of American life now, uh, especially public life and the, the public's relations with uh, its government, its rulers, the people who run the corporations, has become uh, saturated with the most peculiar kind of pervasive dishonesty. I'm sure you see that in Europe, too. Of course, yeah. The the so by hustle you mean specifically consumerism or oh no or, no a, a hustle uh, literally you know an attempt to get money uh, mainly you know that's I think the race and gender um, oh, of, uh, oh I see what you want of course yes absolutely yes are mostly uh, a hustle yes definitely in, that's well these are whole activist industries right so the transgender people. The, the all of these these are they're massive they have a massive institutional base everyone has to get paid uh they they they, they exist to propagate themselves and they, they again they, they continue to liber, liberalize new areas you know but you really have um, to wonder what's in it for for example for a, a company that just wants to sell beer why do they make this terrible blunder of uh, jumping on the transsexual bandwagon uh, and then you know they turn around and they discover two weeks later that their company's in terrible trouble because of that w what's in it for these corporations to behave that way are they being controlled by uh, um, either uh, uh, American or global Intel outfits well I have a very convoluted theory about this well what is it so so I so it's sort of two parts. So the first part is is that what's happening is 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 what I call the diffusion of power downwards. So in the 19th century, most political decisions were taken, you know, in, in government, state bodies, parliaments, or or courts or whatever, and and then enacted among the people. And what's happened since, especially since the later 20th century, is the formal state apparatus has bled power downwards. Uh, into ever lower ranks of the institutions, so state institutions, but also into the press and academia and into the corporate world. So all these people, these stakeholders and these advisory bodies and everybody is allowed now to have some kind of say in politics and in political decisions. So the state has effectively expanded to include hundreds of thousands of people, large parts of the corporate sector, important universities, academics, marketing agencies, media, corporations, everything, all these people function as de facto state agents now. So that's one part of the theory. Uh, and if you look at how policies are actually formed, it, this, this has a lot of support. You know, the, there's a whole world of NGOs that write up policies, and, and some of them are invited into government to implement them, then they leave later, and uh, so forth. 
the the other the other aspect of of this is the sort of principle of the high-law alliance. So especially in democratic regimes, but even in monarchical ones or whatever, it's very convenient for rulers, uh, for the political elite to find allies who are at the bottom of society, people who don't have anything, people who feel disadvantaged or whatever, mm-hmm. and to present themselves as the patrons or the protectors or the the allies of this class in particular they can't they have serious problems allying themselves with the middle because people in the middle or in the upper middle have other options and they have opinions and they have demands right it's mm-hmm. very hard to 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 form, form one unidirectional relationships with people who have options and so there there's this interest in these high low alliances these these basically political client relationships as a means of advancing power and so so the the sort of extended diffused administrative state including corporations is always trying to build alliances with identify itself with promote the interests of notional people at the bottom potential Mm -hmm. political clients right and that's where a lot of this in america affirmative action of course the whole trans idea is and an attempt to define and then uh, ally with a notional sexual underclass. Uh, the, the, there are many different dimensions here, but the basic idea is, is you build these relationships uh, as a means of squeezing the middle, right? And then once you have these firm political clients, you promise them more of what the middle or the upper middle has. Uh, that's unjust. That's what all the rhetoric is all about, you know, white privilege or cisgender privilege or it's a lot of privilege rhetoric because they're promising their political clients something of what the middle has right that's the the political game mm-hmm. that is being played here this podcast is brought to you by the vaulted gold investment platform a service of McIlvaney wealth management gold has been a go-to asset for centuries and with good reason it has no counterparty risk stocks depend on companies staying in business Bonds were loans that someone has to pay back. Gold is and always has been pure gold with no strings attached. As inflation keeps rising, and it's over 6% now, many investors are looking for ways to protect their wealth and ensure that it retains its value over time. While many assets have been struggling lately, gold is making a comeback in portfolios as investors seek to hedge against inflation. Vaulted is a platform that makes it easy and convenient for investors to acquire, store, and manage their gold holdings. The gold is stored at the Royal Canadian Mint, ensuring that it is safe and secure. Because they cut out all unnecessary middlemen, they can offer some of the best prices in the market. And you can request physical delivery at any time. There are no hidden fees, making it a transparent and cost-effective solution for those seeking to protect their wealth against inflation. I use the vaulted program myself to save. The website is clear and user-friendly. Go to kunstler.com slash vaulted and sign up today. And now back to the podcast. It seems to me that, uh, you know, what we're being asked to believe is so preposterous that the... uh, this regime is going to be overturned in the same way that the Jacobins were overturned in the French Revolution. Um, it, um, do you see any um, 
uh, relation between today's uh, insane liberal left and the Jacobins of 1793? Of course. I mean, there's the, you could say, the left has, has sort of at least mythologically called into existence by the French Revolution. At least it was firmly defined at that moment. I think these tendencies are older and sure. very interesting topic but but the the as the left is sort of has undergone various forms but is is always this very uh radical uh this the, the uh, radical system which prioritizes ideological programs over reality uh which believes that human nature is is infinitely malleable and can be reconstructed for political purposes uh, has very utopian ideals, which justify all manner of really quite heinous and horrifying interventions in reality in the moment. Uh, so the, the left has always had these these kinds of tendencies. Uh, there's there's you know you could just there's there's an infinite number of these insane political visions. What seems to me to have made the current left particularly crazy is the so my another theory I have is that, you know, after maybe the failure of Occupy Wall Street in the U.S., after the Euro, Euro crisis in, in Europe, uh, the left uh, abandoned its economic program entirely. So the old Marxists and so forth were suddenly very old hat. And this made the left suddenly very, very much more easy to integrate with the political system because they suddenly didn't want to dispossess the wealthy elites anymore. Mm -hmm. And so so in abandoning their sort of economic critique and their economic program, they turned entirely to uh, issues of uh, racial, ethnic identity, to gender issues, that's where the trans stuff comes from, all this stuff since about 2010 or so. And they, they really have invested their full leftist energy in these sorts of cultural problems and, their, and a new kind of elaborated cultural program, which is which is truly insane and unlike the economic program there's no there's no counterweight to stop it so at least with when they wanted to redistribute all the money and from each according to his ability and to each according to his needs and so forth there was always an elite even in soviet russia even in the ddr mm -hmm. there was always an elite that stopped that to a certain extent you know uh, but th there's no breaks on this anymore they you know there's just no limit to what they can demand at a cultural level and so they're really sort of unchained now well, the know, Jacobins, it's, it's the Jacobins were overthrown virtually overnight. You know, yes. one one night in the uh, National Assembly, uh, they were all gone. Um, it seems to me that this regime may be overthrown very rapidly too. Well, yeah. So I think, of course, if you look at, can uh, my reference point is always DDR, but that you know everything seemed to be totally fine in 1987. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and then two years later, it was gone. Uh, that, so that these things happen can, very, can happen very quickly. I don't doubt that at all. Uh, another thing, though, is I think you know the Jacobins were ousted by other revolutionaries. Uh, the what, what has to happen, an important precondition for for this thing to come apart, is there has to be some kind of split in the political cultural elite itself. Uh, so some part of the elite has to break off. I think that's very important. It just can't be from the bottom. Well, and we've so, just seen that in the USA with uh, the speaker of our legislature, 
the That's House of true, Representatives yes. being overthrown very suddenly. And this has thrown the political world of Washington into a very interesting convulsion all of a sudden. And yes. uh, they're running around like chickens without a head, as if they're never going to find another Speaker of the House, which is preposterous because they, they will find one, you know, in a few days. But I think it's a significant split in what has been a, an ineffectual opposition. I agree. So uh, the United States is very unique. I think that, that you still have some kind of real politics there. Uh, whereas, you know, in Germany, the, it's really a consensus system. So aside from the AfD, who have absolutely no media on their side, who have really nothing, you know, they're just just their supporters and, and their protest party. Mm -hmm. uh, in the US, you have real a real portion of the political establishment is is in the opposition. It's it's uh, it's very I don't know the as many problems as the United States has. Uh, there are many signs of hope there. I, well, I it has, thought this. that opposition has to be activated in a certain way. And I think it's beginning to get activated. I, I'm wondering what what is your take on the whole COVID-19 caper? Um, just give me the the twenty thousand foot view of what that represented uh, for Western civilization. Oh wow, that's very difficult. So a long for a long time, there's this there's this what the, what I call the pandemicist establishment had been fantasizing about. You know, the next pandemic you know, was going to be SARS, or then it was going to be the swine flu of two thousand nine, or it's going to H1, be H uh, one, the bird flu. Oh, yeah, but yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. and and it was always going to be, you know, that and these never really panned out, never really, never really worked out for them. But in the background, the whole time, they they had accumulated quite a lot of influence. They had embedded themselves in public health establishments in all kinds of different countries. They commanded a lot of money. Uh, after about two thousand five, the the whole third world philanthropy, you know whatever that thing is, Bill Gates and others were pouring a lot of money into them. So so sort of in sort of a stealth way, they extended their tentacles into a lot of different areas of society. Mm -hmm. And and then finally, it seems via their own tinkering, via their own via, or, or their more malicious interpretations, a virus actually started to seep around the world that that uh, that they could at least claim had some you know some some pandemic uh, properties to it and and so they the trap was sprung all the system was already set up for these people to take charge of the response and they were very inspired by crazy authoritarian chinese approaches to virus eradication and it was they they then set up a political system that was very self-reinforcing very closed uh, you, the only right answer is to lock down more, mask more, vaccinate more. Uh, it was a very sort of two-dimensional, very bizarre world they, they set up, and it only came apart in the end because people got tired of it and because none of it worked. You know? Yeah, well, uh, well, uh, one can understand why the masses of people fell for it in the initial weeks and months of the of this event because they didn't know what they were dealing with, but. Now that time has gone by and the vaccines have been unmasked as ineffective and harmful, how yes. is it that so many people can still go along with it? Uh, and especially in a, you know, a scientifically sophisticated nation like uh, Germany. Well, the people identify personally with these things. That was one of the things that made 
Corona and the whole pandemic so powerful at an individual level, because unlike climate policy or the energy transition or anything like that, uh, people had to personally do things in their, their daily lives. They were required to stay home or to wear a mask or to get vaccinated or whatever. And so a lot of people identified with this and personally owned the measures in their, psychologically in their minds, you know. And this, this had a very powerful political effect in both directions. So it created people like us who absolutely found it disgusting and horrifying, but it created <laughs> on the other side people who who believed personally and who personally were invested in in these these measures and who personally identify with vaccination and who are very happy, you know, that they that they have, you know, been jabbed twelve times now. Yeah, but you, you know, know the, the, the strange and appalling thing about all this is, you know, we've already uh, touched on the idea that we are living in a climate of utter pervasive dishonesty. But yes. what you're talking about is an entire class of people, mostly you know, middle class, middle intellectual people who are not stupid, being drawn into a vast web of dishonesty that they refuse to get out of. No, which they help propagate and in many ways collaborated in. Uh, it's, it's so is this, very, is this I, collaborator I, guilt we're seeing? Yeah, perhaps yes. I certainly they can't ever. You people who, you know, I had members of my own family, were admonishing me to get vaccinated and everything. You know, this happened at a very personal level. Uh, people who are invested to this degree and have put so much of themselves into into these government policies, it's it's hard for them ever to back out. You know, I don't think that will ever happen. Has Germany I, it, has Germany dropped the vax? Uh, yeah, well, mostly I, with the the latest, what is the three version, is only for only recommended for uh, over sixties and and people who have various problems, health problems. Uh, but the uptake is very low, uh, and I don't think there's very much interest in it anymore. Uh, the the in a way because this is also a curious difference with the United States, uh, because Germany was so authoritarian and heavy-handed. In everything from masking to vaccinating, uh, the the personal investment uh, of the people was more attenuated because they thought they were just following rules. If that makes sense, mm -hmm. uh, the one of the American amazing things about America is the investment of especially people in masking. And I was just recently on a small trip to to Prague, and I saw very um, various American tourists there. They're masking outside, you know, this was only a few months ago. I couldn't believe this. And with their children and everything, it's so bizarre. And, and the, you know, that's because masks weren't as heavily enforced and weren't as uniformly mandated in the United States. So it's a way to express political preferences. In yeah. Germany, that, that we never really had the chance for that because everyone had to wear them or you'd get a fine. Uh, so, so in a way, the very heavy-handed approach of the German state limited the the political valence of of these things but it's still present here of course the yeah. the uh the, the the vaccinator insanity is still like a bad smell in the air um what is your view of the world economic forum and klaus schwab and its influence uh is, is that influence real or is it a kind of a phantom i i always say that the the, the wf is a coordinating institution so they they work mainly by by in by basically recruiting, marketing themselves at various corporate, political, 
academic elites and then holding conferences and getting everyone to meet each other and then trying to come up with sort of bland lines that they all agree with or that are appealing to their different sort of constituencies, mainly uh, corporate on one side and government officials on the other with some fringe intellectuals. Uh, so, so I think that they, they do have a real influence, and, and but that it's it's subtle in that it's really one of coordination. So it's it's a little hard often to 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 precisely quantify what the influence is. Like a lot of ideas get associated with the WEF that in fact developed elsewhere in the political or the corporate world and are merely promoted by them. And it's it so makes that their influence very hard to to pin down. Uh, is there any ill feeling against uh, Klaus Schwab and his organization? Uh, in Germany, you mean? Yeah, uh, it's not really as hard to say. It's not. It's not really a theme here. Hmm. I think. I, th I. I would definitely say that you never heard about him before COVID. I don't know if that was the case in the U.S. or not. I think so. Uh, yeah. So. So. So you do. You do now, of course, and and there are you know German COVID skeptics and so forth who are very. They are uh, invested in in the WEF and regard them as a serious threat, uh, but it's it, if you're talking about sort of mainstream Germany or whatever, they're they're not frequently reported on or discussed very much. The uh, what's very interesting is the Swiss press coverage of the WEF, where they're uh -huh. covered as sort of a business organization, and mm -hmm. so there's they, it's it's sort of an alien way to look at them. So the Neue Zürcher Zeitung had an article before the last meeting about how their subscriptions had gone down and their revenues weren't so great anymore, hmm. and then quotes from Klaus Schwab saying, oh yeah, well, don't worry about that, it's okay, and uh, it's kind of a funny coverage that you don't see, and I think the Anglophone press very much. But uh, they're definitely, I, I think they've become sort of a, a mythological, just like the Great Reset, you know, a sort of mythological meme-worthy catchphrase for for all the things we're talking about. Uh, and uh, for it, they, I find that useful at that level anyway. Yeah, well, it is ironic, though, that uh, it, it appears that Germany and the rest of Northern Europe especially is, in fact, entering a Great Reset. Uh, certainly a reset of what their industrial economies used to be. Um, is there, uh, the, are, are Germans generally aware that their NATO ally, the USA, blew up the Nord Stream pipelines and, and damaged the German industrial economy tremendously by doing that? Uh, so the Nord Stream is a very interesting theme. The German media doesn't prefers not to talk about it at all. So it's a little hard to sound out what, what, uh, what all Germans think, judging from people I know, and also comments on major websites and so forth. I would say it's pretty, it's the idea that NATO at least in some way was complicit is pretty common on this from beginning at the center right of the spectrum outwards, mm -hmm. so towards the further right. Uh, the the uh, for everyone else, for ordinary Germans and so forth, it's kind of a puzzling theme. And there's been two explanations that have been fielded by the German press. So Axel Springer, sort of our main independent, not independent, but privately owned, very pro-Atlanticist, pro-America uh, outlet runs things like Welt and Bild and so forth. They've been running with this idea that the Russians did it. And uh, really hmm. based. Yeah, it's really absurd. And they've been doing this for since the beginning. And and of course, they're being fed bits of 
NATO propaganda from, you know, the open source intelligence community or these people with Twitter accounts that get talking points from NATO or somebody. And so they, they, they run story after story about this. Uh, the other main line is, of course, this Andromeda myth with the, that some Ukrainian group whose connections to Ukraine government are nebulous will never be fully explored did it. They rented this yacht and then sailed out there and planted the explosives. <laughs> so those are the two lines you're fed. And, and what's interesting is that the Andromeda line, the, the, the Ukraine did it line, uh -huh. some, someone connected with Ukraine did it. That, that story is, is, uh, is pushed by state media and by regime adjacent sources like Spiegel. So I think there's, there's, there has been a, a mild attempt to use the awkwardness of that attack by state adjacent sources, journalists and so forth, as a means of, I don't know, perhaps the purpose is to kind of put the brakes a little bit on Ukraine weapons demands, not give them everything they want, kind of justify that in some loose way. It's hard to know exactly what the strategy is. But yeah, of course, Seymour Hirsch, his reporting is completely verboten. It got fact-checked, and then now it's totally buried, you know. Hmm. Has the German public had enough of the Ukraine project? I would say yes. Uh, at least as the polling I've seen, and I think polls always understate these things where there's sort of more position involved, especially for Germans who believe they're supposed to think a certain way. So what polls have, at least half of Germans... Uh, wanting some kind of minimization of support for Ukraine or some kind of out or out from the war. Uh, so I would say the, the real number is higher than that, 60% uh, maybe. So it's definitely sort of verging on mainstream now to to be very skeptical of, of, of that. Uh, I think it's also clear that the, the counteroffensive is kind of not really worked out. Uh, I haven't followed all the details, but that's my impression. Mm -hmm. And there's support for Ukraine is crumbling on a number of fronts. The Poles are facing elections, and it's unpopular there because they're driving grain prices down. Uh, the course, I think the United States, the, the sort of interim budget did not include funding for Ukraine, if I if yeah, I'm for now, it's a little unclear exactly how that's going to work out. You know, the, what, what's happened in the United States is that every time they get into some kind of a budgetary standoff, the executive, that is the White House, turns around and finds a big pot of money, uh, you know, hidden away in some, some discretionary fund in the Pentagon, and then they send that over to I, you. I see. But um, I understand uh, it, the, the, the whole project looks like a failure at this point. And I'm wondering, uh, how do you see that playing out? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think what will happen is, is that uh, the goal of Russians, obviously, is to keep Ukraine out of NATO, to keep it away from Europe as much as possible. So they mainly want to make a mess of it. So they'll annex the, you know, the, the, the Donbass republics, of course, and which they've already mostly done, incorporate them into, into, uh, into Russia. And then they'll, they'll try to make some sort of failed rump state out of what remains. Yeah. And, uh, that, that will be pretty much what happens. Uh, the, 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 what, what's really, you know, what, what, what would matter would be some kind of way to normalize relations with Russia after the war, because I would like to have the gas back and so forth. Sure. Uh, but I think I think now the the uh, that relationship has been even at the cultural level, uh, poisoned, at least that for elites and so forth, that that uh, there's perhaps no, no prospect of, of returning to sort of ordinary uh, relations as before. 
Well, you know, also in the background of all this, there's a kind of lurking uh, fear that we're entering some kind of a significant financial and banking crisis. And a lot of the people that I talk to uh, seem to think that Europe is in a softer position than we are, the, the USA, that, that Europe's banking system is more damaged and is more likely to uh, have gigantic problems. And, and with that, the economies of all of Western Europe and really all of Western civilization. Um, what, what do you hear or what do you, what do you see about uh, the uh, economic issues and the financial banking issues? This is very much outside my area, but uh, I, I have no trouble believing that what you said is true. Uh, since the euro crisis, the, uh, the eurozone has basically functioned at effectively zero interest rates to keep everything everything humming along okay. And you know, with COVID, the problem was with the massive state subventions for everything put inflation through the roof. And so they've raised interest rates now and it's causing sort of massive economic problems that we don't fully understand. Yeah. Uh, so I, I have no no difficulty at all believing that uh, the European banking system is, is in deep trouble uh, and uh, is not able to withstand stresses. Uh, that seems clear. And uh, as we see what happens, the, the, uh, the, at least Germany, the, the, economic crisis looks to be very serious. There's no way out of the recession we're in right now. The uh, inflation is still increasing. Uh, the, the government always says, oh, it's coming down. And, they, and, and one quarter later, it's revised back up. Oh, it didn't really decline after all. Um, uh, they've developed this idea, which I don't fully understand, uh, apparent inflation, which is, I guess, like supposed to be like wind chill or something. <laughs> so even though even though things are more expensive, they're not really or something. I don't really understand this. Yeah, that's just... <laughs> Uh, that's just uh, uh, political bullshit, really. Yes, exactly. Um, and of course, as I said, the housing market is in trouble. Uh, the the it's it's it looks pretty grim, to be honest. I, I don't I don't know how they fix this uh, because you know the the whole point since two thousand eight they couldn't make the euro work without putting interest rates at zero, and uh, yeah. now they can't do that anymore because of inflation. So we, as we see what what happens to the eurozone. Well, the main weakness in the Eurozone is that uh, you have all of these different nations selling their own bonds under a single currency, and yes. yet the, uh, the institution that manages that single currency has nothing to say about what the individual countries are spending. So, uh, yes, you know, the, the, whole, the whole Euro idea is really just, it's, it's flatly stupid. I, I, again, I think it's best understood as some sort of German-centered uh, trading arrangements so we could sell cars without tariffs or something but if yeah. you think about it logically it doesn't make a lot of sense basically all the member countries cede control of the monetary policy to to central eurocrats someplace in brussels it's very stupid yeah it's uh, consistent with my basic theory of history which is that things happen because they seem like a good idea at the time and then times change and they don't seem like such a good idea anymore Yes, but it's very hard for them ever to unhappen. That's, That's the whole right. problem. <laughs> That's right. Uh, tell me, let, let me, um, this is sort of a final question. Um, what is your personal picture of what Europe will look like in 2030? And see if you can describe that in some detail. That's very difficult. I don't know. I think the, the 2030, well, 
Germany Germany will then be substantially deindustrialized. So uh, we will the by then also a lot of these uh, EU limits and domestic limits against climate limits will have hit, right? Sort of driving the 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 crisis further. It's 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 a good question whether how whether that will really happen or not, or whether it, those 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 goals will be used merely as a cover for for the economic disaster. I think I don't know. It's 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 very very uncertain. I think it could go one of two ways. Uh, one way would be if if there's if the prevailing I don't want to call it a rightward shift in politics, which is happening not just in Germany, which is in Italy as well. There's, there's in France too, multiple mm -hmm. countries. If we if we shift, not even just towards a little bit more sanity, and if that's not shut down, then we might see a more sane world uh, by 2030. Uh, there might be uh, at least some uh, more border security. Perhaps the influence of the climate ideologues will be more attenuated. Uh, things won't be perfect, but they won't be as bad as they are now. Uh, the so you might see something like Europe to 2005, but poor. Uh, the the alternative would be if if the elites succeed in quashing the opposition, which I think is a real possibility. In which case, we're we're much more in a kind of DDR direction Ooh. by then. DDR and, being uh, uh, the old East Germany of the Soviet Union. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. Because yeah. uh, th th then things will begin to look very similar to that because we won't have all, all of our um, money and the houses and our cars anymore. Uh, the, the again, industry will be largely gone. Uh, the, they will only accomplish this by, of course, banning the protest parties, uh, by, by expanding control over the media and so forth. So that's another possibility I see. I think it really depends on what kind of capacity the current elite have for... Uh, what I call hard authoritarianism. So okay. how ruthless can it really be? Because I think the current elite are sort of soft. They were selected in more, more prosperous times. So we see how 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 tough they really are. But they, I think there's definitely there at least ambitions to to really crack down on politics and culture in a way that sustains their current goals. And uh, that that seems kind of dark. So I don't know if that's very much detail, but it's it's. We are really at a turning point right now, and you know I, th I would have said that two years ago, but I guess turning point lasts a long time. Yeah, it's very it hard to see the future from here. When yeah. I think of a picture of the European future, I think about uh, Peter Bruegel and a winter landscape from you know the fifteen oh, hundreds. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's 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 a that's a good picture. <laughs> well, uh, maybe because of climate change, it won't be so snowy. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Or maybe, or maybe we're entering another ice age. Who knows? Yes, um, yes. <clears throat> I mean, after all, that's that's why we see the the paintings of all those people skating on the canals in Amsterdam. Yes, yes, yes. Well, as we say, the only thing that can save us from green energy policy is global warming. You know. <laughs> it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you, Eugipius, and uh, it's very interesting to hear your side of the what's going on in your side of the ocean. And I look forward to checking in with you again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was, as I said, a pleasure. And the conversation was fantastic, very interesting. And I hope to speak again. Okay, we will ride again. Mm -hmm.